Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Motherkind, the podcast that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of motherhood and life with more acceptance, ease, joy, and purpose. Thank you so much to each and every one of you that come back every week to listen, learn, and feel inspired. And if you do love the podcast, can you do me a favor and hit subscribe because it really does help. This week's guest is the incredible Susanna Apsi. Susanna has been a leading couples therapist for 35 years. There is not much Susanna doesn't know about love and relationships. She's got a new book out called Tell Me the Truth About Love, which is a collection of amazing stories from the therapist's couch. This is an incredible episode. You're going to learn so much. You're going to learn why children can cause such challenges in relationships and what to do about it. You're going to learn about how your own childhood shapes our adult relationships and why it's so important to understand what those dynamics might be. You're also going to know how it might be time or you might be seeing signs that your relationship is coming to an end or how to save it from the brink of a breakdown. It is a powerful episode packed full of wisdom and insights. I absolutely loved it. Here it is. There is so much that I want to talk to you about. I don't know how I'm going to keep it within an hour, but we're going to try. Thank you for being here. That's a pleasure. I loved the book. I've read so many of your amazing articles. And often when I don't know where to start, I think, right, let's start at the start, which was the moment that you decided to train as a couples therapist. And that was absolutely fascinating for me to read about because this podcast is all for mothers. And you decided to train because of that, this phrase that you said, I was like, everyone is going to relate to that. That sniping you started to experience with your husband after the birth of your first child. And I just know every single person listening is going to relate Mm. to that. Tell Mm. us about that and how that led you to the path that you've been on for 35 years. Unbelievable. I think that lots and lots of couples experience it. In fact, it's sort of sort of always a miracle to me that couples can have babies and not end up feeling disgruntled and cross with each other. I think it's the norm, really. And I think that the way I understand it is because a baby introduces that essential competition of needs. And that was certainly my experience. I wanted my husband to have the sort of time and attention to give me that he had before. But suddenly we had this infant who was saying me, 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 quite rightly. Plus, I suppose I really wanted to be a kind of ideal mother. I mean, that was a mistake and obviously didn't achieve it. But I felt very strongly I wanted to be this sort of perfect mother. So I was very driven. And really, that meant that we used to sort of fight about, you know, whose turn it was to get up in the night and whose turn it was to go upstairs and retrieve a muslin and, you know, a cloth and all of those things. It was a constant sort of struggle about, it's my turn, no, it's my turn. And I'd been interested in psychotherapy before that already, but that was a sort of moment in which I thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to find out about this. And, yes, I was definitely, A, too poor probably to go and seek couple therapy and be too arrogant and 
to want to be the seeker of help rather than the giver of help. Probably, you know, there's a bit of me that didn't want to do that at that time. Of course, later on, as you train as a therapist, you have lots and lots of therapy yourself. But right then, I made that move. And I'm really glad I did because I think it really helped my marriage. And it's also been a really interesting career. Well, thank you, first of all, for just normalising. I was nodding ferociously, as you said. You know, I don't know how a couple has a baby and doesn't have those arguments. I think it's just not talked about enough. Certainly, I was totally unprepared for, yeah, the sort of bomb going off in my marriage, which was the new baby. And I guess I'd heard that very old-fashioned adage that a baby is like, you know, a sticking plaster and it can bring you closer together. And that was absolutely the opposite of my experience. And I know so many people listening. And so thank you so much for validating that. And I I read somewhere, I don't know if it's still the case, but that divorce rates were highest. They peak sort of twice. And the first peak is in that first year of parenthood. Having now the experience that you have, what can we do in those early days to weather that storm of the exhaustion and the responsibility? And as you say, the competing needs and also the changes in roles and responsibilities, which I think is huge for mothers of my generation. You know, I think in a way, knowing that this is a period in your life that everybody will be joyous, actually. You know, it's very unusual for people not to feel joy. And the research actually shows that people do feel huge satisfaction and pleasure from having children, even small children. As alongside it, absolutely crashing relationship satisfaction. I don't know if you've ever seen what people sometimes call the graph of doom. <laughs> that graph which shows, you know, that you start up here and then there's this very long, slow decline as you have children and it only really lifts up again as children leave home. So I think knowing inside that it's going to be tricky and expecting that and to have perhaps low expectations of how much closeness and pleasure between you there will be, particularly in that early stage, is one thing. But I think the other thing is to take pleasure in doing things together, because I think one of the mistakes that couples can make is to get into a sort of what I call shift parenting mode. You're so desperate for some time to yourself, even if it's just to stare vacantly at your phone. (laughs) Say, well, you have him for an hour and then I'll have him for an hour and you have him Saturday morning so I can go out and get my hair done. I'll have him Saturday afternoon. And of course, inevitably, some of that has to go on. But I think that My observation is that the couples who've done best and the ones who've got most pleasure out of having small children are those who've very determinedly decided to do things together. (laughs) You know, if they're going to take their child swimming for the first time, they do it together. And now, as a grandparent, I do it together with my husband do it on my own I'm just not sure I could cope and it's so much more pleasurable doing things together because you laugh together at the funny things that babies do and you're there when it gets a bit kind of tricky so I think that is my best advice apart from getting as much sleep as you possibly can taking as much help as a zone offer from other people 
that saying it takes a village to raise a baby is absolutely true. The idea that we live in these nuclear little bubbles with usually only two adults looking after children a lot of the time is extremely strange, really. I don't think we were really bred to do that. I totally agree with you. And it's only in the last, what, 100 years or so that we do it that way. It's quite a new thing that our generation of mothers are grappling with. I love that you talk about that graph of doom and I have seen it. And something that I was wondering and I really want to ask you about is how do you know when you're in that downward trajectory, you're arguing a lot, you might be wanting to parent in really different ways, which I know comes up a lot. Your different personal histories are probably being triggered by becoming parents. How do you know when that's all normal, it's okay, or actually are we too misaligned here? And the best thing to do would be to separate. And that I know is a huge question and I really want to get into it with you because I get loads of messages from people around this saying, how do I know whether this is the right relationship for me or is this a symptom of the society we live in, the stresses we're under? How does someone begin to unpack that? Well, I don't think it's linked to the number of arguments you have. I think that being able to have differences and disagreements is actually really important. It's really how they get repaired that I think is important to kind of be aware of. If you're in a constant grind of arguments that seem to undermine all the good feelings, so you don't recover good feeling, you don't have a row where you call your partner a stupid ass and then two hours later you're laughing about something. Because I don't think that matters. If you have arguments where you are cross with each other and even if you literally hate your partner as you're having those arguments, which people do, people don't like to acknowledge how much hatred there is as well as loving feelings. But when those loving feelings return, do they return? And do you feel like a cuddle? Do you feel like holding their hand? Do you feel like sex? Do you feel like you can repair it? So I think if you're finding it possible to repair, even if it's difficult at times, then, you know, things probably will be survivable. If you find the arguments have ground away all the good feeling, then I think obviously maybe that is time to seek some help and to go on a journey of exploration, either with a therapist or talking to other people about whether this is the right relationship for you. If the arguments are nasty and corrosive and they're going on all the time around children, that probably isn't good for you and it probably isn't good for your children. But whether you should separate or not, goodness me, how would I know? Nobody can tell you when it's time to leave or not. That's a mystery. And why people decide to leave or decide to stay, I have never been able to figure that one out. I loved something that you said, where you said getting close to a breakup can be the moment that a couple make a breakthrough. That is absolutely true, yeah. Sometimes, you know, at the point that you really are going to lose somebody, you realise you don't want to lose them. Because we put up our fists, don't we? And we defend ourselves against acknowledging that we might have done something 
mean or that we haven't been very loving or we've been distracted at work. But, you know, sometimes when you recognise actually this is possible, it's all going to end and I'm going to lose that person, you have to face things in yourself. In a way, maybe you face and own your vulnerability and your need for somebody else in a way that most of the time you keep well at bay. You don't want to know that you need somebody. And a lot of us find that really difficult. So, yes, it can be a breakthrough. It sometimes happens around affairs that at the moment of jeopardy, when both partners realize, oh my goodness, this might end. And that can happen with an affair. You know, you stumble into an affair, it gets discovered, your partner threatens that they're going to leave. You think, oh my goodness, I didn't mean that. I was protesting. You know, I was cross that you haven't had sex with me for the last six months or that you're always too busy in one way or another. But I didn't really want you to leave. And at that moment, partners can turn back to each other and suddenly realise what they've got and what they value. That's so fascinating, isn't it? I love thinking about as well, because I guess this is what I've done a lot of couples therapy with my husband. I'm super lucky that he was keen on it quite early on. I was really lucky, you know, through our 12 years, we've done lots of it. And I'm always fascinated by our blueprints that we learn, how we see those playing out. But it's just so blindsiding, isn't it? If you haven't got that knowledge of yourself, firstly, how important are those blueprints that we learn about relationships? And then how does someone begin to start to unpack what those might be for them if they haven't maybe got the time, space, resources to go to couples therapy? Can they do that themselves? I think it's difficult. I mean, one can always be curious about why one is reacting in certain ways, why one feels things so strongly. And then I guess you can link it to well, what happened to me in childhood? Developing curiosity about yourself and your partner is so is so important in trying to understand why things are going wrong. But yes, unfortunately, as humans, we learn what relationships are about by witnessing what we see between our parents and between ourselves and our parents. It shapes our expectations about the kinds of things we're going to meet in intimate relationships in the future. So if we've been let down a lot as a child, perhaps there's been a divorce and your father didn't really figure in your life after that and you felt maybe very abandoned in that sense, it can make you have expectations in your relationship, which is, oh my goodness, is this safe? And then we develop all sorts of defences against those worries. And the defences are part of the problem. The worries, if we could speak about them and we could know about them and the things that we're scared of and that we're frightened that might happen, if we could share those with our partners, it would probably be fine. The problem is, is we don't know quite what we're scared of. But we have built a whole lot of defences and ways of being. Might be, for instance, if you're worried about abandonment, you always like talk to the hand. I don't care. 
you know, your partner seems to be the one who's doing all the running all the time and because you make them be the one that carries all the worry about loss, whereas you keep yourself sort of intact and unafraid with this defence. So it's hard work to understand those things about oneself, but reading, talking to friends, taking part. I mean, after all, mothers get together and they talk about their relationship with each other. And you learn things through that, don't you? Some of it you just learn, oh, my bloke's a pain in the neck. Your bloke's a pain in the neck. Yeah, blokes are a pain in the neck. (laughs) Women shore each other up like that. But you also watch what's happening with your friends' relationships. You discuss things. And all of those things help us understand more about ourselves. That's my experience more so is that I often get the validation from speaking to other people about how hard it is, like you were sharing before, less so those sort of therapeutic breakthroughs, which I've definitely got. And, and, you know, understanding about my attachment style and my husband's attachment style has just been absolute game changer, absolute game changer for us. And I don't think we would have done that were we not in couples therapy. It's incredibly powerful to have that space, isn't it, with that sort of non-judgmental expert to just help us work through. You know, there's some good group programs around. The government sponsored some of them for a period, which were couple group parenting programs. Because parenting programs tend to be just mothers usually. But there are two professors in America called Philip and Carolyn Cowan. And the place where I trained and I used to work, Tavistock Relationships, have developed interventions for parents as couples. And couples together talk about their relationship. And I think that can be a very exciting learning experience. It isn't just validating because you've got both parts of the couple there. And of course, it's a lot cheaper than going to couple therapy. That is really quite expensive and out of a lot of people's reach. You must have got thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of experience. And I was wondering, you know, in the new book, you talk about the patterns and archetypes and the things that you see. What are those main patterns that you see time and time again? And how can knowing those help us navigate our relationships better? You do see patterns. In a way, part of the problem with having worked for 35 years is you see the patterns quite quickly and you make assumptions, which is, of course, one of the problems, one of the core problems that couples make about each other. And I can make assumptions about a couple and they come in and I think, oh, it's one of this. And A, that means sometimes you go too fast because a couple need to have time to explore and find things out for themselves. And B, I can be wrong. So if there's one thing that I think couples do is that they have certain beliefs about relationships inside them, derived from childhood, and they carry those beliefs into their new relationship and they play them out. And so it's really beginning to think, Am I making assumptions about my partner? Do I always, if you use certain words and, you know, it's commonly understood, I think, you always do this. You always do that. It's a real sign 
that you're caught in a belief. So are you in the here and now with your partner, with their particular idiosyncrasies and difficulties and worries of their own? Or are you enacting some childhood drama? And one way to know if you're doing that is the way that you have such certainty about things. So beware of your certainty and develop your curiosity. Am I right? I know that he is, what can we imagine? I know that he hates it when I do X. I know that he never unloads the dishwasher. I know he would never help me if I asked him to pick up, you know, our child on a Tuesday. All these beliefs that we have, I think, can entrap us in relationships because we treat our partners perhaps not exactly as they are, but we have projected so much onto them from the past. Of course, the complicating factor is, is that we tend to choose a partner who echoes the past. So you believe that, you know, you've had a dad who's always busy at work. So you believe that you will never come first for him. And you lay that on your partner. You know, I know I'll never come first for you. You're always going to put work first. And the trouble is, you've actually chosen somebody who's a little bit of a workaholic. So not only have you got your internal belief, but you've also happened to chosen just the right person to act that role in the drama. It is never quite that simple. Your partner will not be exactly like your dad and your partner may actually be very receptive to you explaining how it's been for you when you were a child and how you felt neglected and how this is reoccurring again. And that opens something completely new up for a couple. Yeah, I remember learning about this when Guy and I, wait, we were just married and we were learning about this in therapy. I won't go into the specifics, but I had chosen in Guy, my husband, someone who embodied the something that I really hated. And the therapist suggested to me, well, perhaps you've chosen him because it's an opportunity to heal it. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is incredible news because I thought we were going to have to break up. <laughs> I remember thinking, this is so amazing that, yeah, maybe instead of trying to change him, which is what I was trying to do, it was about anger. Instead of trying to change him, maybe I could use this as an opportunity to change it in myself. Your therapist was wise because... When we choose these partners who echo something in our past, which may have been unresolved or sometimes even traumatic, I really don't believe we're doing it just because we're idiots. You know, well, I had a father who always shouted a lot. So now I've chosen a husband who shouts a lot. We do it because we want to change the story. We want to find a way through to manage something that wasn't managed or processed in our childhoods. So yes, it can be optimistic, but it can also be very challenging to make a partner choice on that basis. A quick word from this week's sponsor, Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 about six months ago now because I wanted more energy, who doesn't? And I wanted to look after my health more proactively. 
I've got to say six months in and I have really noticed an increase in my energy levels. And a lot of you kind listeners over on social media have been saying my skin and my hair looks great. So thank you. And that is 100% down to my daily glass of AG1. So AG1 is a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and even aging, basically all the things. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews, and I can see why. It's amazing. And it even tastes nice too. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Back to the episode. I know in my life, I tend to choose what feels comfortable and what feels known to me. And so Mm -hmm. certain patterns feel very comfortable to me. So it makes sense that in a way I would choose those, even though I'm not choosing. Do you know what I mean? The subconsciously, they feel familiar. So I go for it, even though on the surface of it, it's very triggering to me. It's so confusing and so complex, that sort of subconscious Yeah, I mean, some people have thought therapists and that, you know, there is what Freud called the repetition compulsion, that you simply repeat because things are familiar. I think I'm more in the school which thinks, well, it isn't simply about repeating. It's about repeating in a way that tries to overcome the original difficulty. What may take us years and... It often involves mourning, I think, because you have to give up the idea that things will be a certain way if you keep banging your head against the wall. Eventually, you will break through into this new idealised world. It is more about accepting what's in the past and what you have to live with in your present. And we underestimate the importance of mourning in marriage. Marriage involves a lot of mourning which sounds a funny thing to say, but it involves giving up. Because, I mean, who would fall in love and get married if you didn't have some kind of immediate idealization of your partner and yourselves as a couple? You know, falling in love involves idealization and a sense of, oh, I've met the person who's going to make my life wonderful. And, you know, you're full of hopes and dreams and a long marriage inevitably involves mourning that ideal and being able to tolerate and bear the limitations of the marriage and the person you're with and who you are in that relationship too. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I think it was for your brilliant article in Vogue and they said, what have you learned about love? And you said, perhaps the most important thing I've learned is also the simplest, that it's disappointment in our partners is inevitable. And it's how we deal with that that can shape our success, failure of our long-term partnerships. Yeah. I really think, you know, how you come up against that disappointment and how you deal with it. Do you protest? I think actually protest is appropriate. You know, when you're sort of disappointed that the gift that you asked for, you know, you asked for your partner to buy you a handbag, particular kind of handbag. And rather than come back with the 
this is awful. This is labourist. What I'm going to say, rather than bring you the Mulberry handbag, they come back in triumph with a Dune handbag that they say is exactly like the Mulberry handbag. And there's a gap between a Mulberry handbag and a Dune handbag. I mean, one that most of us can live with, after all. Most of us have to live with, after all. But it represents something about having to deal with disappointment, doesn't it? And as children, we deal with it. And in marriage, we deal with it. And how we cope with that, whether we shout and scream and say, you don't care about me, you didn't buy me the Mulberry handbag. And why is it that you always forget my birthday? And why is it you always get the wrong thing? Well, whether you find a way to take pleasure in the metaphorical dune handbag. And that can take years, actually. It can take a very long time. Alternatively, just don't ask your partner to buy your handbag in the future. <laughs> and how do we tread that line? You know, I think my generation of mothers, I'm really noticing, are becoming more and more empowered, more and more aware of their worth and what they deserve. How do you get that line right between lowering expectations and embracing that disappointment? And then on the other side saying, no, actually, I cannot handle that this marriage now does not feel enough for me. It doesn't feel alive enough for me. It doesn't feel passionate enough for me. How on earth do you begin to unpack that line so that you're not settling? You don't have that feeling of a settling as opposed to what you might want, which is that sort of deeper love or truer love or more vulnerable love do you know what I mean I'm not asking the question very succinctly no no you're 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 quite rightly sort of challenging me about an issue for women of putting up with things that they shouldn't put up with that's Um, it that's what I'm trying to say because if we say well let's just lower our expectations well yeah but what do we deserve as women as mothers and what are we modeling Because all the time, as we talked about the top of the conversation, we're blueprinting for the little eyes that are watching. It's tricky, isn't it? Because marriage is a political institution or a relationship is a political institution. And the way we are in that institution is inevitably shaped by how women are treated in society, their sense of their own worth, as you say, how empowered they are. But on the other hand, I think men are also disempowered in their relationships a lot of the time. If we have a mindset that we are with a partner who is somehow more powerful than us, and we're fighting for our rights, we're already, I think, a lot of the time in an enactment, which doesn't necessarily belong in the relationship. So if you've had, for instance, a mother who might have been very disempowered in her relationship, who was, if you like, a bit of a second-class citizen in her relationship, you carry that into your current relationship. You have to do the same bit of work I was talking about earlier. Is this really right? Am I really being disempowered? Or actually, am I fighting a ghost from the past here. And it's not really about my husband trying to oppress me in a particular way. And that's not to say you shouldn't assert yourself, 
I'm not in any way trying to disempower women and say, just put up with something any more than I'd want to disempower men and say, just put up with something. Good marriages are meetings of two people who have a kind of equality of arms. They are both as vulnerable and they're both powerful. If you're in a marriage or a relationship where there is such a clear power differential all the time, then, of course, that is something to question. But that isn't the usual situation. When I first became a marital therapist, I had been very involved in the the women's movement and identified myself very clearly as a feminist. And I went along to be selected as a what was then a marriage guidance counsellor, which was my first training. And I had to write well, what do you think will be most difficult for you? And I wrote, I think it's going to be really difficult when I see all these couples where the men are bullying their wives. Because I thought, well, I won't be able to stand that. But the experience of 35 years is not that. Couples don't come in. Very rarely do couples come in and you say, my goodness, that man is a complete pig and bullying his wife and my job here is to empower her. That isn't the situation. Men come in fearful and anxious, and sometimes that makes them loud. Women often are the loudest. They're often the loudest. Often, I think, because they are fighting a kind of ghost from their own childhood, and perhaps from society in general, which is I've got to get my voice heard. And men often are anxious about not being brutes and often in some ways are not directly assertive enough. They find ways to assert themselves, often in rather passive, aggressive ways. Or, of course, they can go off and have relationships with other people. Or they can use money in a way that has some kind of retaliatory aspect to it. But they're not usually the shouty ones. Shouty ones are often women. So it's very complicated. But yeah, nobody should stay in a relationship if they feel misused or abused. That is, those are red lines, aren't they? What are some of the red flags for those two things, to be misused or abused? What are some of the things that you would be encouraging people to look at? Because I think this is something that's really fascinating with the rise of social media as well. I mean, often my social feeds are just flooded with you know, warning signs, red flags, things to look out for. And I'm not sure how helpful that is because often that's written not from people like you who have 35 years experience. And so for you, you know, with all your experience and training, what are some of those red lines, do you think? I think money and how money is used is quite important, isn't it? If you find yourself in a relationship where you're dependent financially and the way money is held by one person that goes out of its way to disempower the other person, I think that is quite a concern. Obviously, any kind of physical violence whatsoever is just an absolute no-no. That isn't to say that couples where there is violence should always separate because sometimes the violence is mutual and situational. Sometimes violence erupts, particularly around young children, because there is such 
high levels of distress and what I call emotional dysregulation. You know, three o'clock in the morning, you've got a sick child, a sick baby, then your three-year-old starts crying and your husband gets up and then is a bit rough with the three-year-old and you shout at him and say, don't say that, you shouldn't do that. And then the next thing you know is you're pushing each other and the children are crying and you're crying inside and he's crying inside and the whole thing is, is really painful and feels out of control. Now, that isn't necessarily, that's the end of the relationship. That is, whoa, we better stop and really have a good old think about what's going on here. We need to seek some help. We need to make an agreement that we will not cross certain boundaries. But if every couple who find themselves resorting to a thrown cup or a slammed cupboard door, then separate there'd be a lot more divorce because that is one of the common reasons people come to couple therapy because there's been an incident of frightening, violent eruption. I'm not talking about one person battering another. I'm talking about mutually shouting at each other and one person throwing the glass of water at the other. That is a common reason couples come to see me because they've scared themselves. Something's happened that's felt really out of control. And then they come and they begin a therapy. So red lines. I'm not a great one for rules, red lines, all these things. I think the most important thing is to stay curious and keep reflecting on what's going on in your relationship and in yourself and how you feel. Have you seen a lot more of those types of couples coming in post-pandemic? I mean, we had a little newborn in the pandemic and a four-year-old. And honestly, we have so much privilege. We were having support. We had support. You know, we were able to grapple together tiny bits of childcare where we were allowed it. But I just cannot imagine how couples with any fault lines would have weathered that time, particularly with young children, no childcare, both having to work. Are you seeing the impact of that yet? Or do you think we're going to see that in years to come? No, I'm just beginning to see it. I think people people were talking about it in a way before I saw it, but it's just beginning to be the focus of what so many couples bring, is how things were during lockdown and the resentments that have arisen from the distribution of responsibilities. Or I think any couple therapist will now be saying there's a lot of couples coming forward. It's unbelievably distressing. I mean, just sitting in this room that I'm sitting in now, talking to couples, some of whom were very distressed at the time, some of whom had barely noticed there was anything happening in the outside world. But I could hear on my left and on my right, mothers shouting, you know, in the houses near me. And, you know, it was painful to listen to because you could see the distress and the sense of being completely worn out by trying to work and look after children who were bored and frustrated. And we need to invest some resources. Otherwise, the cost to the next generation of children and to adults 
And the impacts, social impacts, are just going to be terrible. It's very foolish if we don't make some investment now in family support. And if you were in charge of the budget, where and how would you make that investment? I mean, obviously, it's massive amount of money needs to go into child and adolescent mental health services at the moment. I mean, it's just a, you know, a really disaster, I think, what's going on. But one of the sad things is that there isn't enough couple support embedded in those services. So you atomize the family and you say, well, this child is presenting with this problem, you know, they're wetting bed or won't eat or whatever. But you don't then think, well, what's happening between the couple? And if you just paid attention to what's happening in the relationship between the adults, you might find that the child is representing a symptom that actually belongs between the adult couple. So we'd rather send the children off than actually deal with the problem between the adults. So, yeah, I would do a lot of things, but I would invest a huge amount of money in family support. It's so sad that we don't have children's centres in the way we had. Couple therapy used to be more available through organisations like Relate and Tavistock Relationships than it is now. The funding for those organisations has got directed away from them and into local authorities to work with very, very distressed families. But the ordinary couples who used to come to Relate and Tavistock Relationships are having to pay much more than they used to. So there's a real issue around funding. It's so interesting what you say about that, because that's absolutely my opinion. It's not a professional opinion like yours. It's just an opinion. And I saw it in my own family. You know, children can often, in a way, be the sort of truth tellers with their behaviour of what's going on at a deeper level. And yet we other and diagnose and you make the child the problem. Yeah, I'm afraid that's what we do. It's easier, isn't it? And it's not easy to have a child that's in distress. But sometimes the hardest thing is to look at yourself and what's going on in you and in your marriage. People are very reluctant sometimes to address the problem in that way. Yeah, it's so interesting because I guess in a way I was lucky. I've got lots of addiction in my family. And the route that we went down is when one family member's in rehab, we all have to go and do, it was like part of the process. So to me, it seems totally normal that when one person struggles, you all have to look at the roles and the parts that you played that. I just, as you say, I just wish that was more prevalent on a societal level. It would be absolutely game-changing, wouldn't it? It really would. And uh, yeah, I spent a lot of years trying to campaign for our health service to think more about the system that patients were in because we don't we just think of the single person presenting with a single symptom rather than think about the system around them and what's going on in it which is madness really because humans become ill largely because of what happens in their relationships you know relationship distress and mental illness are intimately connected Yet we we rarely really acknowledge that. It is so true. And so what's next for you? Obviously, the book is coming out. Yeah, the book came out on the 19th of May. So, yeah, that's exciting. I'm doing lots of things like this and continuing to see couples. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll write another book. 
<laughs> and I, I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? A partner who doesn't snore because you're being woken up enough by babies and small children. You don't want to be woken up by your partner as well. I feel like this is personal experience coming through. <laughs> Actually, my poor husband doesn't snore. It's me that's the snorer. It's just I've had a lot of couples who you know, really struggle because of you know, the difficulties around sharing a bed. Yeah, it's that's probably a whole other episode in itself, <laughs> whether we need to do that or what that looks like. Oh, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. And I feel like you've just validated and normalised so much for me and, and for everyone listening. So thank you so much. Been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Zoe. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. I'm Lauren and I'm Nicole and if you enjoy this show you will love our podcast self-care club every week we trial a different form of self-care and report back on the results we've tried everything from cuddle therapy setting boundaries laughter yoga and many more two friends who rarely agree on anything testing out the world of self-care so you don't have to we've even written a book dedicated to self-care practices that cost you nothing you can listen to self-care club wherever you get your podcasts or to purchase our book search have you tried this on amazon